0: The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. History, many people will unhesitatingly tell you, is all about facts. What happened when, where, and by whom? A moment's reflection makes you realize that there must be something more, because, as any high school student will quickly tell you, just memorizing a bunch of names and dates is an incredibly boring and pointless thing to be doing. In order to make sense of the past, then, and make it a subject deserving of our time and attention, the important thing is not so much to know what happened, but why. Not least because doing so will enable us to learn from our collective experiences. But as Princeton University historian David Canadine is quick to remind us, understanding why the past unfolded as it did is, well, complicated. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to do it, of course. Quite the contrary, only that we must be constantly on our guard not to oversimplify things. As promised, uh, or perhaps threatened, uh, I did tell you that... um, it would be interesting to start at the beginning mm. that is to say your beginning yeah how you became motivated and interested in history and yes. becoming a historian to to begin with so uh was this something that uh, had formed for you from a a very early age were you uh were you passionate about history when you were a very small child how did it begin for you
1: it is a very good question of course it's one that i've asked myself a lot and as i get older, I kind of ask it more, really. I sometimes increasingly wonder how I ever got to be doing what I've been lucky enough to do, that's to say, to persuade people for the best part of 40 years to pay me money to read and write books, which is Mm -hmm. an astonishingly privileged uh, form of existence, really, for which I'm hugely grateful. I mean, insofar as I can, as it were, help out with that, uh, it would be, among other things, the following. I, I grew up in Birmingham. I was born in 1950 and on the western side of Birmingham. Um, And my mother's family came from what in those days used to be called the Black Country, which was an area west of Birmingham devoted to industrial production. Um, And the Birmingham and the Black Country that I grew up in, in the 1950s, was still, as I could now see and perhaps even understood at the time, in many ways recognizably a kind of 19th century Victorian world. Um, The changes in the southeast of England of the 1920s and 30s, the Hoover factories and the arterial roads that rather passed it by. So I think I was always conscious of growing up in a world where there were a lot of things that were kind of old, even though the 19th century wasn't Mm. old in the sense that Salisbury Cathedral would be thought to be old. And I was also struck by the fact that there seemed to be this rather close relationship between the countryside and the town. I lived on the western edge of Birmingham where these two things kind of connected. And in particular, uh, heading from where I lived into Birmingham, there was this very beautiful suburb Where rich people, as it seemed to me at the time, lived, called Edgbaston, which had been, which where the land was owned by an aristocratic family who then leased out the plots. Uh, for houses to be built, most of them had been built in the 19th century, on which middle-class and working-class people lived and I was intrigued by, as it were, that connection and I wrote about that in the school magazine when I suppose I was only 12 or 13. So I had this curious sense of the 19th century being very close to where I was living and growing up. It was the world in some ways that I inhabited and I also had this quite complicated sense that the relations between different social groupings uh, might turn out to be at least as much collaborative as perhaps adversarial. Uh, now, I'm probably overdoing that in retrospect and over-determining uh, over it all. But well, you I are an academic. I, I am an academic, so you know, we're probably not very good on motivation, at <laughs> least of all on our own. But those were certainly some of the influences on me as uh, a boy growing up in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, and I suppose, insofar as there's a kind of central area of interest which is still my main preoccupation though I've written more broadly on lots of other things I suppose to some degree it is 19th and 20th century Britain and so um, that's really in some ways how it started and then my father bought me lots of the volumes of the Pelican History of England as it then was um, and I thought those were rather wonderful and I read those very avidly and I did read a lot I was a very bookish child I suppose and so somehow history became... A subject for me of enormous fascination and I was lucky enough to be growing up when you know a whole range of writers uh, Eric Hobsbawm, Asa Briggs, J. H. Plum, Alan Bullock, H. A. J. P. Taylor, Owen Chadwick were all producing books of major historical significance which also reached a broad reading public of whom I was increasingly one. Um, and so it was a rather marvellous time to be growing up because every year, or indeed every kind of other month, you know, there was another book by one or other of them coming out which were just hugely interesting to read. And Asa Briggs in particular was a major early influence because he wrote this wonderful history of Birmingham. Um, and ever after, that's always been a book that I wish I'd had the chance to write when he had which was when he was very young. So I suppose it's a kind of mixture of things and then I remember I I went of course to read history at university because by then I was pretty clear that's what I wanted to do and I always remember this was at Cambridge going to what was then called the careers service in my third and final year to get some advice and I went to see them and they and I said um, well I'd thought about the civil service but I didn't really think that was for me and I would thought about applying for scholarships to America and I thought that was a very good idea and I thought that maybe this would help me then take up, um, become a research student um, and become a professional historian and the man said to me, he said, David I've been thinking about you and I don't think the civil service is really quite your scene, I think you ought to consider applying for scholarships to America and then maybe you would like to become a professional historian and I said to him thank you so much for that advice, I'd never thought of any of that. (laughs) <laughs> and so that's kind of how I got started.
0: When you were growing up in Birmingham, you mentioned uh, the sense of history having passed one by. Did you have, a, or, or at least a sense of modernity having passed one by to some mm. extent, um, did you have a sense that you were in a place that was imbued with the spirit of the Industrial Revolution and, and, and that you were close to James Watt, as it were, and, and this... this this sense of, of having, uh, having been at a place that was in the white heat of, of, of really leading the world a hundred years previously? Or, or was it more a sense of that was then and this is now? and, and
1: uh, Well, it was certainly true that the physical um, creation of the world of Bolton and Watt and their contemporaries was still very much in evidence in the world in which I grew up um, My mother's family, the black countryside of the family, lived close to a whole network of canals and railway tracks which were still very much functioning in the late 1950s and early 1960s when I was growing up. And the central area of Birmingham uh, still looked exactly um, as it did in a very famous print that was done of Birmingham in the middle of the 1880s. There was this area called Chamberlain Square, named after Joseph Chamberlain. Um, And in the middle was a memorial fountain that had been put up to him in in the early 1880s. There was the town hall opposite, uh, designed by Joseph Hansom, as in Hansom cabs, put up in the 1830s. There was the great uh, civic library, uh, in which later on I myself worked as an undergraduate. Um, There was the council house and art gallery, and there was Mason College, which was the... Uh, beginnings of what later became Birmingham University. And the streets were still cobbled, and there were still some tram lines. Um, the trams didn't run by then, but the tram lines were still there. Um, And so one certainly got a sense that um, uh, this is a sort of Victorian world, not least because from the mid-1960s on, large parts of it were demolished, Mm -hmm. and there was this sense that Birmingham must move into the future. The the phrase, the new Birmingham, was all the mode, and the beautiful 19th century library was demolished, and so was Mason College, and there was a lot of hoo-ha about that. The conservationists got very exercised by it. So there was this sense, as I was growing up, of both uh, an awareness of an old world in which I kind of grew up, which had obviously once been a hugely vigorous world, but by now probably wasn't anymore, not least because um, the zeitgeist of the 1960s was we have to get rid of all this Victorian stuff and start again. And so I grew up and was lucky enough just to catch the tail end of the existence of a lot of this Victorian stuff and then to live through the era of the 1960s Um, when uh, the prevailing mode was this all has to go and we have to start again and surely we can do better, which I'm not sure in the end we have. But that certainly gave me a strong sense that there is the world of now and the future and it somehow isn't the same as the world of then, in which fortunately enough I'd actually grown up.
0: And so thanks to this uh, recommendation, you were steered away from the civil service and you... uh Move towards becoming a professional historian. I'm and sure it, Whitehall has been grateful for yeah. that as well,
1: but they probably don't
0: know. But anyway, they ought to be grateful. But in in in, uh, in terms of your subject, uh, you have written uh, prolifically about the British aristocracy. You've written about Victorian England. You've written about uh, uh, the monarchy. You've you've uh, you've written uh, a great deal about British history um, in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. Was this something that uh, let me put it another way. Uh, drawing a, a, a very uh, very path line between what you've just said mm. and some of the works that you've later produced, one could say, well, this was always something that was in your uh, subconscious, that you were thinking about these things, you were driven in this particular direction. But uh, did it ever become a conscious choice? So I say this uh, thinking about a conversation that I had some time ago with John Elliott. Mm. When he mentioned... Um, two things, this uh, rather uh, unexpected discovery of Spain from an undergraduate experience that he had had, but also the sense that, well, British history was very crowded, he said. And there was this this understanding that it would be very difficult to break through. Mm. Did you feel that as well? Did you feel the British history was crowded, or, or, or was that just a natural draw for you that you didn't hesitate to move into?
1: Well I probably didn't know as much about it when I started as I ought to have done and had I known more I might have, uh, John of course was far more uh, keyed up as to what he ought to be doing and what the field was when he started I suppose, but my sense when I started out, um, and I suppose this was in 1972 when I graduated from Cambridge and then went to Oxford as a graduate student and in fact came to Princeton also as a graduate student, my sense then was that in the early 1970s it was actually possible to have kind of read everything on 19th-century Britain um, that was serious history and that had been written. Um, and that not only was it possible to be completely up to date with what was coming out, but it was also possible to feel that there was a whole variety of areas that were still ripe for investigation and even perhaps conquest. I'm, I'm not sure that's true now. We're now talking you know, mm. 40 years further on. Mm. And it's now impossible to keep up with the field uh, and if you're starting out now, it's certainly impossible to have a mastery of it in the way when it was a much smaller field that I was able to do. Yeah. But certainly when I, when I dived in in 1972, and I dived in in part into a subject that had a very considerable initial local inflection about the aristocracy as urban real estate developers, um, it was possible to take the view that almost no work had been done on that at all. Um, and that there was a whole area of urban history, of social history, of architectural history, of cultural history, um, about uh, aristocrats with considerable fortunes who had made their fortunes, or at least made large parts of them, not from owning uh, broad-acred agricultural land and getting rents but from doing a whole variety of other things, of which urban real estate was one, investing in railways was another, owning coal mines was another, owning docks and harbours was uh, yet another. and that was an absolutely non-crowded field. And when I started off, there'd almost been nothing written on exactly that combination of questions. Um, and so there were huge areas where I was probably the first person to look at the archives, and where, when I wrote my first book, there was a sense in which I was kind of opening up a subject, which uh, other people have taken up since, and, 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 and I think it's developed very interestingly. So. Uh, While it is true that there was quite a lot written on some aspects of 19th century Britain, especially the high politics, there were whole areas to do with economic history, social history, cultural history, and we would now say uh, gender history, which hadn't been looked at at all. So it was still actually then, in a way that's much less so now, a fairly open field. Hmm. And
0: when one looks at at, at your work, I have to ask you this question. Um, I, as a a non-specialist, I can still group things fairly uh, I think fairly easily into, into this domain that we've been talking mm. about you can, you can look at the decline and fall of the British aristocracy you can look at ornamentalism you right. can look at how, how uh, both the British perceived their world in the 19th and 20th centuries and how they were perceived externally right. and so forth um, and then comes this biography of Andrew Mellon Yes. Yeah. so how did that
1: happen? how did that happen? Well, it happened in the following way, that um, uh, at the time that I was asked to write that, um, I was a professor of history at Columbia University. Uh, I taught in New York from 1988 to 1998, which gave me, of course, a kind of distance on British history, which I've always found rather stimulating. Um, But in any event, uh, as a result of that, uh, Linda and I spent the summers back in Britain because there was British history to work on. And uh, one evening, it was a Friday evening, the telephone rang and somebody said, um, before even asking who I was, and I didn't say, and they said, this is the Andrew Mellon Foundation in New York, we want you to write the life of Andrew Mellon. And I said, this is David Canadine in Norfolk England, you must have the wrong number. (laughs) (laughs) And to this day, I think there is some thwarted biographer somewhere else, probably in New York, waiting for the phone to ring. So that's literally how it happened. Um, I mean, as it were, there are always more than one explanation for things. The explanations that I later uncovered behind that were the following. Um, When Andrew Mellon died in 1937, a life was commissioned by his two children, Paul Mellon and Ailsa Mellon-Bruce, from a man called Burton Hendrick, um, who was a professional writer. And Hendrick wrote the life, Um, But then uh, he wrote it on such terms that the Mellons were paying him a salary and he wouldn't get royalties from the book and they would decide whether the book should be published or not. Um, And in the end they decided, in the aftermath of Pearl Harbour and the world kind of moving on from the times of Andrew Mellon, that they wouldn't have it published. But Paul, who was Andrew's son and heir, ever after had it in mind that one of these days he'd like to return to it. And by uh, the mid-1990s, which is when this phone call happened, he was in a sort of ending up mood. He'd done his own autobiography, he'd republished the autobiography, his grandfather, Andrew's father. And he went back to this issue of whether the earlier biography by Hendricks, not published, should be updated and published, or whether uh, they should start again. And in the end, Paul and his advisors decided they would start again. Um, And that's how they got to me. Now, how many people had actually said no before they got to me, I was never told. They claim none, but I am not wholly sure of that. But insofar as there were connections and how they got to me, it was the following. Um, At the time that I was teaching at Columbia, my wife Linda Colley was teaching at Yale. And Yale was, of course, Paul Mellon's University and one of Paul's closest friends there was a man called Duncan Robinson, who directed the British Art Centre, which was the centre that had been formed out of Paul Mellon's own collection of British art. And Linda and Duncan knew each other very well, and I got to know Duncan very well, and entirely by chance, Duncan and Paul Mellon and I had all gone to the same Cambridge College as undergraduates. Hmm. Britain is a very small world called Clare. And what is more, when Paul Mellon went to do a second BA at Clare, having been an undergraduate at Yale, He studied history, and he attended the lectures of the then Regis Professor of Modern History, who was a man called George Macaulay Trevelyan, whose biography I had just written. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so my name, I think, came up uh, as a result of these connections. Moreover, I'd written a book called The Decline and Fall of the British Aristocracy, and one of the themes of that was the sale by impoverished British aristocrats of great works of art to American collectors of whom Andrew Mellon was one. So all those bits of this jigsaw, I take it, kind of fitted together. Um, and so I was asked to write The Life of Andrew Mellon for those reasons, insofar as I've been able to reconstruct the story. And since it was a kind of upside-down coda to the decline and fall of the British aristocracy, uh, it seemed to me I would be out of my mind not to say yes. And so I did it, um, and it was a marvellous project. Andrew Mellon was a very difficult man, um, a very shy, retiring man of few words, Um, whom after 15 years of living with him, as it were, I don't think I got to know any better or felt I knew any better at the end than I did at the beginning. But he lived an amazingly interesting life as this Pittsburgh banker and venture capitalist who created coppers, Gulf Oil, Alcoa, Carborundum, was really the man who transformed western Pennsylvania into this great industrial area that it was. Then he was secretary of the Treasury. Um, and then he was also a great art collector and he created the National Gallery of Art in Washington. So it was an extraordinary life and to be invited to write it was an amazing fluke um, and I said yes and I wouldn't have missed it for anything.
0: I, uh, talk a little bit about um, the art of writing biographies and, and how that may differ from narrative forms of history and other forms of history. You talked about living with Andrew Mellon for fifteen years and not having necessarily a sense that you knew him any better fifteen years afterwards. Um, do you have a? Well, let, let me ask you a, a more specific question because I understand that's what I'm supposed to do. Um, <laughs> um, do you have a, a, a preference in terms of your writing style or the orientation? By which you are writing, for example, do biographies play a near and dear role to your heart, as opposed to writing other types of uh, historical works? Do you? Uh, is is there any generality that you can? Uh, I'm not asking a particularly good question. Um, I've got okay. the answer to it. Then. Uh, okay, but, but uh, <coughs> let me see if I can actually ask you <laughs> in a coherent fashion first, and then you can give me the answer. So <laughs> yes, I'm going to give you the answer, whatever your okay. question is. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> So uh, I, I'm, I'm curious about biographies, and I, I have spoken to other historians who have, um, who have waxed eloquently about their motivations for mm-hmm. writing biographies, their passion about writing biography, um, and it, it seems like this is something that would be rather a different way of writing than other forms of history. Is that is that a fair way of putting it? Is that right? Or or, is that,
1: uh,
0: or can one make any generalizations whatsoever when it comes to writing biograph- uh, biography?
1: Well, that's certainly right for me. Uh, one of the things that I enjoy about being a historian and one of the reasons why, although I have two marvellous publishers, I'm rather the despair of them, is that I never like to write the same book twice uh, or even to write the same sort of book twice. I like to uh, do different sorts of subjects and devise an appropriate expositional structure for the sort of subjects that I'm doing. And biography is one particular aspect of that more general issue. It's also the case that one of the influential figures in my life as a historian was J. H. Plum, um, probably not as well read now as, or widely read now as he used to be, but when I was growing up he was another of these extraordinary figures along with Briggs and Hobsbawm and all the rest of them who were producing books of enormously high quality which reached a broad audience. And of course the great, alas, unfinished project of his writing life was the biography of Sir Robert Walpole, of which he wrote two volumes uh, but never actually finished it. So I kind of grew up with that, along with lots of other things, and while I was dimly aware, even when taking A-levels at high school, that there was a kind of debate about should historians write biographies and are biographies written by historians the same as biographies written by professional biographers, nevertheless I wasn't entirely sure that that was a very interesting issue. It seemed to me that biography was something it would perhaps, as I matured or tried to develop into a professional historian, would want to have a try at. And so I've written Uh, three biographies, the biography of George Macaulay Trevelyan, the biography of Andrew Mellon, a short biography of George V, which will be coming out this December, November. And I've also just been appointed the new general editor of the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. Hmm. So it's an interesting subject for me, and certainly I've tried my hand at it, but again in various different guises. The Trevelyan book uh, was organised thematically it didn't seem to me that, as it were, the day-to-day substance of Trevelyan's life was particularly interesting. Most academics don't actually live very interesting lives. They might do interesting work, but they sure. don't live interesting lives. And I was eager in the life of Trevelyan to draw attention to the the nature of his work, the dominant themes which ran throughout his life as a historian, and how, to some degree, those engaged with his broader public work. So, so that life... Uh, has a set of thematic chapters, each of which goes all the way through his life. The Mellon book is a full-dress biography. Um, it's very long, it depends on a huge array of archival resources, which uh, sources which I was able to get round because I had research assistants who could do some of the work. And that proceeds very much chronologically, although within each chapter, because Mellon had many themes to his life, his private life, his family life, the money-making, the bank, the businesses, uh, the art-collecting, the philanthropy, the politics. I had to structure within each quite short span the different themes and to kind of move the life forward year by year on a whole variety of different fronts. And then the George V life um, is a short life, it's only 25,000 words and it's five chapters of 5,000 words which turns out to be exactly the right length for dealing with him. So again, in each of those cases, uh, I mean that the biographies were, I suppose, written to a slightly different remit um, imposed by either the publisher or in the case of Mellon the Mellon Foundation, but they have come out as very different sorts of works. I enjoyed writing them all. I do think that historians write biographies differently from professional biographers because I think we have a broader sense of context. Mm-hmm. A broader recognition that the historical process is not just driven forward by single individual figures—the great man—the great man theory—and the theory. um, so I think it gives us a better perspective on some of these individuals than professional biographers have. But certainly, for me, um, writing those three books has been hugely interesting. I mean, entirely by coincidence or chance, all three of them were rather gruff shy men, barking shyness is a phrase that would apply to all of them, so I think it's high time I wrote about someone who laughed rather more and talked rather more, so I'm still in the, do, do you the have market. Any, do,
0: do you have any up your sleeve? I was going to ask you that. Do you have any any different characters um, you think, oh, I would just love to write a biography of this particular individual uh, 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 as part of perhaps a greater historical context or to illustrate a particular point or just because they're fascinating individuals, and I, I, I'm interested in digging deeper into that era, that time.
1: I don't have anybody specifically on the stocks at the moment. I've written an awful lot of essays about Winston Churchill, which, about whom I love to write. And certainly he didn't do barking shyness, so that's a different <laughs> mode altogether. And he's enormous fun, and I teach a junior seminar here at Princeton on Churchill and Anglo-America, which seems to go well. And probably one of these days, I might end up writing a Life of Churchill. Um, there are lots and lots of them already, so one might want to ask, is there any room for another one? But I think there might be. Mm. So that's a subject that maybe one of these days I'll get to. I also have the idea of writing a, a kind of uh, a book which would consist of a, a, a set of essays about British composers. Uh, it would probably be Sullivan and Parry and Elgar and Vaughan Williams and Walton and Benjamin Britten. And I'm rather interested in the notion of looking at composers as historical personalities, uh, not just, as it were, as great men who composed great music, though that could be said of all of them, but where they came from, what their social origins were, what their education was, Mm. um, how they presented themselves as composers, how much money they made, what honors they got, um, and how far their work uh, has remained in the repertoire since they died. Um, and I think that might, it would it, it, probably be called Composers Without Music, and I should have thought that's an absolute no-no for any publisher, but it seems oh, to me a rather good subject. Uh, well, it might, it might work. <laughs> so that, that's another thing that's somewhere down the road. But one of the difficulties, of course, is, as you get older, as we all do, is you reach the stage, I mean, I can think of at least ten books I'd like to write, but since uh, writing books takes quite a time, brutal truth is that's not going to happen. Mm. So at some point one has to decide which ones to try to write and hope to live long enough to write those and which ones not. But certainly the Churchill idea is one that I suppose one day I might be drawn to and this book about composers is one that I'm actually especially drawn to because again it will be a wholly new sort of book for me to write and it would require a wholly new sort of expositional structure. And in fact I've done the Elgar essay which I did rather feel worked rather well so I might get to that one of these days.
0: Mm. Let's move to the <coughs> undivided past, as promised. Um, as a reader, I had a sense that this was a book that represented a sense of frustration that you had long held in terms of um, the rather stereotypical Manichean treatment of us versus them that exists at various different levels of society. The men on the street, mediated through the media to professional historians themselves in terms of how they approach various things. Is that fair uh, or, 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 or not?
1: Yes, that is fair. I mean, it's a book totally unlike any other book I've written, which may be good or may be bad, and different people have different views on that. I mean, it came about um, in a quite a complicated way. Um, The immediate cause, again rather like the Andrew Mellon biography, was an invitation as it were, if not exactly to write it, to write something in that I was asked to give the Trevelyan lectures at Cambridge. And it's a hugely um, great honour to be asked to give those. Um, It put me in very illustrious company which I was very privileged, if slightly intimidated, to belong to in terms of the people who would given them before. Um, and, of course, I had written Trevelyan's Life, so it was a peculiarly agreeable thing to have been asked to do. And the idea of those lectures is that you take on a big subject which will reach a broad audience, which is what Trevelyan himself had done, and since that's what I like doing anyway, that was fine. Um, and Richard Evans, who was then the Regis Professor of Modern History at Cambridge, and to whom I think I owe the invitation, said, I want you to take on a big subject so that undergraduates will come and listen. And so I said, well, what about religion, nation, class, gender, race and civilization? <laughs> you know, is that, <laughs> how's thin that? Thin <laughs> that? It's not big enough. And he said, all right. Grudgingly, <laughs> <laughs> he said, all right. So that was, as it were, the, the proximate reason as to how I got to that. But uh, you're right in your thought that in some senses it was a book that I'd been toying with for quite a while and uh, where it sits in the kind of canadine oeuvre, to the extent that that's a a subject, is that it's the third book in a trilogy I never ever intended to write. And the first book in that trilogy is Class in Britain, which, again, uh, I wrote because I was invited to give a series of public lectures at Columbia when I was on the faculty there. And Class in Britain was about the way in which perceptions of British social structure had shifted from a kind of Marxist view of class conflict to a rather different view on the part of academics. And that had opened up a whole new set of ways of thinking about British social structure, not just in terms of us versus them or upper, middle and lower classes, but also in terms of a kind of much more elaborately graded hierarchy. Um, And in that book I played with those different ways of thinking about how people understood the British social structure across the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, and how historians had contributed to different ways, to those different three models that I played around with. And having written that book, I then thought, well, how would it be if I tried to take on what was becoming by the 1990s and 2000s, a big issue in the sort of professional historical world that I inhabited, which was what's the connection between the history of Britain and the history of the British Empire? And this suddenly became um, a big issue and still is. You know, the histories of Britain tended to ignore the empire, and histories of the empire tended to take Britain for granted and just got on with whichever bit of the empire they were concerned with. And so I thought to myself, well, is there any scope for, as it were, developing or extending, literally geographically, what I'd written about in class to something to do with the empire? And so. Ornamentalism was the second installment, although it was no, uh, I never, as I say, thought to write installment one, let alone installment two. And ornamentalism, in large part, was about the way in which this hierarchical model of British society was transported or analogized to the different parts of the world that the British either settled or came to rule. Um, and it partly took off from Edward Said's book, Orientalism, and of course it's a slightly smart-ass play on those words in the title. And whereas Edward, uh, who was a colleague at Columbia, and whose work in fact I much admired, Edward had set up this dichotomy between the West and the East, hence Orientalism, what I wanted a built-in part around racial categories. While I was certainly not going to deny the existence of those racial categories, Um, and the animosities and antagonisms to which those certainly gave rise. I was also interested to explore the notion of how did the British Empire work, um, how did it function, and how did people see it? And it's clear that one of the ways in which it worked and functioned and people saw it was as this rather elaborately graded, either exported social hierarchy from Britain or analogised social hierarchy in the countries of rule uh, in the Empire. And then there was a huge amount of dressing up and flummery which kind of brought this alive and made it real. One of the influences on that book was Clifford Geertz, mm-hmm. anthropologist at Princeton, who wrote a lot about ceremonial, not just as an alternative to power, but as a version of power, and that there's a lot of cliff in that book. So that was the second book, and then I thought, um, well, maybe this should be pursued a bit further. Um, I've kind of talked about class, and I've talked a bit about race, though not much and probably not enough in, ori- or in ornamentalism. And then I began to think about this whole notion of these collective categories of which class was certainly one and race was certainly another. And well, there was religion to add to that, and there was certainly gender. And then of course, uh, in the aftermath of 9-11, there was Huntington and the Clash of Civilization. And so, uh, in a way that, uh, I must repeat, was almost entirely unforeseen and unpremeditated, gradually came into my mind a notion of thinking about these different categories of collective identity and collective antagonism, religion, nation, class, gender, race and civilization. And I thought it would be interesting to have a try at looking at those side by side in a way that I wasn't aware that any historian had ever done, And to see what the claims were that historians made about these categories of analysis of the past and the use to which these categories had been put by, as it were, political actors across the centuries. And so I was beginning to think about this um, set of issues when the invitation came to give the Trevelyan lectures, um, and an invitation um, with the particular suggestion that I should take on a big subject. And so, um, uh, a kind of first go on that set of issues was uh, at the Trevelyan lectures. uh, They were fairly crude and schematic, because I really hadn't written anything until the lecture invitation came. So it was a chance to try out some very preliminary ideas, and they were very tolerant and sympathetic in the audience, and let me get away with it. Um, But the book, as it's finally emerged, doesn't bear much relation to the lectures as given, except that it is about the categories Um, that I've described. It has those six chapters topped and tailed with an introduction and conclusion and the general argument remains the one that I advanced in uh, the lectures, which is to say that seeing the world in terms of these conflicts of us and them, whether it's religion, nation, class, gender, race or civilization, is undeniably one of the ways in which we have seen the world in the past, one of the ways in which the world worked or didn't work in the past, and it's certainly the way we are constantly invited to look at the world today by politicians, pundits, and so on. But the case I wanted to make was that that may all be true, but there's another way of thinking about the world, which is these conversations across these allegedly impermeable boundaries of identity. And that was drawing on the work of people like Anthony Appiah and Amartya Sen. And that's really what the book was about, and it's what the lectures was about were about. And so it ended up finishing off, as it were, a trilogy that I never meant to write.
0: And one of the things that's interesting for me uh, as a reader is that this is not so much a prescription. There are many people who write, we should see beyond our differences, mm. we should, uh, we, we should uh, elevate to an extent where we can actually engage in fruitful communication, we're not as different as we might mm. like to believe we are and so forth and so on. It, it's not a prescriptive philosophical work, it's not a moral work, um, it's a historical work. Mm. And and so what you're really doing is you're pointing out instances of well, there's a lot of uh, in the public consciousness. There's there's this stereotype that these these impermeable divisions have always existed yes. and have always played this critical role yeah. in history. But in fact, if one looks closely and one takes each one of those and looks under a microscope, one sees ample evidence of of. Uh, of trends going in a rather rather different direction. Yes. If you look at uh, well, each, each one of the c- topics that you examine if one looks at race, if one looks at nationalism, if one looks at religion there are a, a plethora of examples of people who have collaborated, who have showed compromise, who have showed understanding these are historical arguments mm. and I think that's um, quite missing in the, in, in, the, uh, in the modern context certainly to the man on the street who picks up the newspaper and who hears about the rhetoric of the clash of civilizations and this notion of us versus mm. them. I think that's a very, very valuable counterpoint to put out, from a, again, from a historical perspective. We'll talk a little bit about the prescriptive elements and what one can do with that mm. and, 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 and so forth. But um, but historically, I, I think it's uh, it was at least quite salient for me to be able to look at this and say, oh my goodness, I wasn't aware of this, I wasn't aware of that, I, I had no deep understanding of that. Because I think many of us unthinkingly, react in a way to say, well, this is inevitable. This mm. is an aspect of the human condition, in fact, that um, that it's it's part and parcel of being human to be in an antagonistic position. But when you look back and you say, well, actually, no, let's look at religion, and let's look at what the Romans did, and let's look at how tolerant and practical they were. Um, not everybody reads given as closely as, right. uh, uh, as Indeed. you do. <clears throat> and, and so to to be confronted with this and to recognize, especially in in this current climate of uh, religious warfare and clash of civilizations, um, I think it's refreshing to be presented with striking arguments to the contrary uh, to establish dogma, to establish wisdom, that are based on a historical record. So, uh, so
1: thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's certainly one of the things that I try to do in the book. Um, And in that sense, of course, the book draws on. It's a very derivative book in the sense that there's no original research in it because I'm uh, skating on a lot of terribly thin ice and covering large areas of human history which I can claim to have no expertise on at all. But certainly one of the things that I wanted to do was to draw out a lot of historical work, quite a lot of it rather recent historical work, which has explored in different contexts and with reference to different categories, the sort of conversations across the boundaries of identity uh, which historians, I think, are becoming increasingly aware have occurred. Um, So, for instance, um, in an earlier time it was uh, commonplace, I suppose, to present the period of religious wars from the Reformation through to the end of the Thirty Years' War as a time of constant religious confrontation between Protestants and Catholics. But what a lot of the recent work, uh, I must repeat, it's not my area of expertise, but so I've been able to learn, has shown is the extraordinary way in which Uh, If you go down from the level of theological disputation um, or princes fighting each other in the name of one religion rather than another religion and look at the way people on the whole were living out their lives, it wasn't on the basis of those antagonisms at all, that there were households in which uh, the servants might be of a different religious faith from the people who employed them, that churches were used for a Catholic service and then for a Protestant service, that there were a whole variety of interconnections uh, in ways that Previously, we hadn't understood as much as I think we now do. And uh, one of the things that the book is therefore doing, uh, or at least tried to do, is to, as it were, report on the way in which historians, some historians, not all, have recently begun to see that uh, the history of humanity is about the history of conversations and dialogue as much as it's about the history of antagonism and war.
0: Exactly. And, and so, so this, this gives one a sense as a, as a layperson that, well, hang on, what we may be led to believe is necessarily inevitable that there will be this clash that people have always uh, uh, focused on differences Mm. between uh, 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 various different characteristics is in fact, uh, not only is it not inevitable, it's not even true if if, if one looks carefully. Of course there have been uh, many clashes, of course uh, much of human history uh, can be interpreted Mm. in this particular particular way and you're not denying that. But that's not to say that it's inevitable. It's it's not to say that it's always been the case, and it's not to say that it will necessarily be the case in the future. And, and one of the things that I thought was being communicated to me when I was reading this book um, was a focus on well, what is history for anyway? If you actually look mm. at it, and you mentioned at some point, um, of course, this is a this is a brand, this is a, a rather grand question that historians from time immemorial, have been asking uh, and answering with various different answers as to why they write, what mm. the purpose of history is, and so forth. But one of the things you mention is that history can liberate us from our present-day views, our present-day experiences, our, our, our present-day orientation that we may not necessarily question otherwise. So, it's, it's a means by which we can transcend what we, we might think is inevitable. And so that seems to me to be a motivation for for writing this
1: on your part is that is that uh, that's certainly right? true i mean again going back to the the historians as it were with whom i grew up that's to say i was reading them as i i grew up um they were all historians who wrote for a broad public um and it's always been a view of mine that history is part of public culture that it's generated not entirely but in large part these days in university settings and it's crucially important if like me you're a practicing historian to know what your colleagues are thinking and what they're up to and I regard that as a very important part and privilege of being a professional historian. But that in the end we don't just write for each other as fellow academics, we write uh, to be engaged in and participants in a broader public culture. Um, And that seems to me to be a major part of what we're up to. Um, And it's certainly the case that one of the motivations behind writing The Undivided Past was to put forward the argument that the constant invitation to see the world in terms of these warring collectivities, uh, who are, as it were, predestined to exist and to fight, uh, is not the whole of the human story, and we deeply misunderstand the human story uh, if we don't understand that. Beyond that, it seems to me that one of the jobs of historians, when politicians and pundits and false prophets stand up and say to us, the world is very simple and I will tell you how simple it is and all we need to do to fix it, it seems to me it's constantly the job of the historian to say in reply, no, the world is very complicated. Um, And you disregard that complication, not only at your peril, but probably at ours as well. And part of the purpose of the undivided past was to say the world may have on occasions been built around simple animosities, but for much of the time it wasn't, and we need to understand that. More broadly still than that, I think that the purpose of studying history and the The purpose of writing history and the purpose of reading history is indeed to try to get ourselves outside ourselves. Uh, It seems to me that history is the most powerful antidote to the geographical parochialism which assumes the only place is here and the temporal parochialism which assumes the only time is now. Uh, Well, actually, an awful lot of people are living lives now very different from ours in other parts of the world, and we ought to take notice of that. And actually, most of humanity has had very different assumptions about how to live their lives than we have now. And, you know, in 10 millennia's time, I wonder what people will make of us. I don't know how well we'll be thought to have done. And I think it's very important for a historian to have a sense of that, that this is how we are living our lives now, but in other places now and in other times, then other people, maybe as decent as us, maybe more decent than us, have had different views and live their lives differently. And I think that one of the purposes of historians is to try to explain how other people in other places or other times may have had views, indeed, which we now find completely unacceptable, but that they weren't necessarily any less decent than we are. So history is a huge antidote to parochialism and back to the undivided past, one of the parochialisms that I'm kind of going for in that book is the parochialism which assumes that the way to understand all of the world is in these simple Manichaean binary antagonistic categories, which seems to me simply not to be good enough.
0: And one of the things that arises by looking at six categories simultaneously is a logical issue, Mm. as you point out, which is um, it's logically incoherent if one divides people into six different groups, um, and all of them are of course overlapping in all sorts of ways, people of different religions, different genders, different nationalities, different classes and so forth, that it's logically impossible Mm. to imagine that the world can be divided in that way with all six of those being preeminent. Uh, factors for historical decision-making over time. It's logically possible one of them can be, but that's about it.
1: And in fact, of course, as I show in the book, they all make that claim, and right. that, was, that was part of the attraction or the challenge of writing that book, of, as it were, placing these six identities, religion, nation, class, gender, race, and civilization, side by side, right. which nobody had ever done before, as far as I know, and I'm not sure anybody's uh, had a better go, which I'm sure they could do since, to try to see what claims were made on behalf of each of these. And of course, it turned out, in the jargon of our time, that each of them made totalizing claims for the preeminence of this one single identity, of the conflicts arising out of those identities, and of that as being the motive power that drove the historical process forward. Um, so, as it were, that religion's the most important identity, um, divides people and drives the historical process forward, and then the same claims made for each of the other five. And self-evidently, they couldn't all be right, and my own sense was that they probably were none of them right uh, in those extravagant claims that they made, even though of course it's the case that for most of us, since we are people of multiple identities, having a religion, carrying a passport, uh, having some sort of um, social and occupational determined identity, um, having a certain sort of skin colour, I suppose, a certain gender um, and maybe even signing up to a civilization Maybe these are elements in identities, but to elevate the claim of any single one of those above all others to be the most important thing about individual identity, collective behaviour and the antagonistic processes which are assumed to drive the historical process forward seemed to me to be a grotesque oversimplification. And part of the purpose of the book was just to lay all that out. Yes, and uh,
0: the other thing which occurs to one as, as one is reading um, is that there's an assumption for those who are advocating the preeminence of one particular categorization uh, uh, as the most significant way by which decisions are made or by which uh, human history is played out and so forth, is that these very categorizations themselves are very often subject to change mm-hmm. in terms of our <coughs> understanding of what uh, uh, of, of what they actually are, and the assumption is no that these are fixed. These are these are the same. 2000 years ago yep. as they are today. Yep. But of course that's not the case. No. When Aristotle was talking about women, he had all sorts of different connotations in terms of his understanding of what that, that word, that sense, that, that understanding meant than we do today. Indeed, the, the word race, of course, is something which 150 years ago had a very specific, I would say, I would guess, you tell me, fairly broadly understood connotation of what it means. Today, I think most people of a scientific disposition would say that it's an incoherent uh, expression. It doesn't really mean anything. No. It's very hard when you look at the, at the word race to try to, well, where is that in the DNA exactly? What, no. what do we even mean by race? And so the assumption that these are
1: everlasting categorization schemes itself, of course, is flawed. Indeed, I think that's right. And obviously what we understand by religion or what we understand by different religions, for example, has hugely changed and evolved over time. Many people now would suppose, to move on to the next of my six categories, that the nation state is the kind of primordial and perennial and perpetual mode of human organization. But in fact, if one surveys, albeit from a very high level, um, most of human history, then as John Darwin uh, wrote in his book, After Tamerlane, the default mode of human organization for most of human history has been empire, not the nation state. And a world of more than a hundred nation states, which is the world we inhabit now, is a creation of the last 50 years or so and it simply didn't exist in that form before and many of the countries that are called nation states are so different um, in their scope their scale their history their sense of identity their capacity to function that to call them all nation states is itself pretty strange i mean the the united states is a nation state well actually it's a land-based empire Quite a successful one, but it's not really a nation in the sense that perhaps France or Germany is. North Sudan, South Sudan, what sort of a nation state are those? Um, India, uh, Bangladesh, Pakistan, how did they come into being? What are they based on? And the whole notion that you can, as it were, pile each state uh, uh, side by side and say there's a hundred of these and they're all fundamentally the same seems to me to be simply wrong. And anybody who thinks this is normally the way that humanity has organized itself is also wrong. So we have to be quite skeptical about these categories, um, these identities. Um, The claims that are made on their behalf are often uh, grossly exaggerated. by the people who were in charge of whichever of these categories they might be. And part of the purpose of the book was to draw attention to that.
0: Mm. For me as a reader, it seems that there were two different targets or audiences. Tell me if I'm I'm right or if I'm wrong. On the one hand, there was the general public. um, And uh, the general public writ large, the media pundits, as you say, um, pushing back against... These rather trite simplifications, that's a redundant expression, these rather trite <laughs> <laughs> phrases, <laughs> these rather trite phrases uh, and synopsis and uh, attempts at understanding contemporary events in terms of these guys fighting against mm. those guys and we're wearing the white hats and they're wearing the black hats yep. and this sort of thing. Um, to recognize, as, as we said before, that history doesn't bear this out. That this is certainly not inevitable. Uh, that there are all sorts of shades of gray in time, in place, and all the rest of that. But there's another aspect which seemed to be coming up uh, repeatedly through the book. So perhaps I was, uh, perhaps I erred in this. But my my sense was that you were also singling out some of your your colleagues or the academic discipline of history to say, look, one of the Issues with history as a profession is that we naturally are predisposed to look at differences, and we are naturally predisposed to be able to make some sense of synthetic claims, grand synthetic claims, or what have you. That's understandable, but we should be careful in that. Was, was that one of your motivations, uh, subconsciously or otherwise? Am I completely off base here?
1: No, you're not. No, It's certainly true that the motivation to uh, try to make some contribution to a broader public conversation about how politicians and religious leaders and journalists and commentators uh, invite us to understand the world, that was certainly part of the purpose of the book. Um, and. Uh, It's gratifying that I do get emails from people all around the world, not huge numbers, but sufficient numbers for it to be gratifying, saying they've read the book and it does help them make sense of things in a way that they aren't very often invited to do when they watch the television or read the newspapers, and that was part of what I tried to do. And in a very, very minor way, I think it's had some impact. But it's also true that there's a kind of scholarly engagement with the book Uh, a scholarly agenda to the book, partly trying to bring to public notice a lot of the recent work that's been done by some historians discussing these conversations across the boundaries of identity, but also uh, taking issue with uh, some other historians for whom the way to approach the past is through a single category of identity which assumes a model of conflict. Um, And I've lived long enough to see uh, social history. Uh, Gender history, cultural history, certainly uh, many practitioners of those disciplines, especially in the early stages, embracing those models and claiming that their approach to the past is the most important one that you need to understand above any other, that the identity they want to look at is more important than any other category, and that the way to understand the identity is that it's built around Mm -hmm. conflict. Now I of course want to concede without a moment's hesitation that uh, social history cultural history, gender history, the history of race, have hugely enriched our understanding of the complex and many-textured raiment of the past. Uh, And I account myself very lucky to have lived through this astonishingly fertile period in historical scholarship when that's been going on. But I think the danger is that if you adopt these approaches to the past built around one identificational construct... Which is preeminent. Which is preeminent then you tend to oversimplify the the the, the complicated nature of the historical process because there's a lot of other things going on as well Um, and you tend to make inflated claims for uh, the particular identity you're looking at um, and therefore you also tend to occlude those many aspects of the human experience, which are not built around notions of difference. So for example, I mean to offer uh, a kind of crass example of that, uh, there are a lot of people in the academy to this day who think that the essential roots to the past are the secular trinity of class, gender and race, and that that's what you've got to focus on, because that will help you understand the things that are worth understanding about the past. Well, I'm far from denying that those are things that are important. And indeed, I've certainly written quite a lot about different people in different classes. But there's clearly an awful lot else going on in the human past that those things don't explain. I mean, and to put it in a a crass and, as it were, recent mode, I'm not sure that class and gender and race help us understand 9-11. But 9-11 is actually quite important. So maybe we need to think a bit about the fact that um, we need to get appropriate methodologies for the historical problems we want to address um, and to work out what of the many broad and growing approaches to the past, what combination of those are most going to help us understand whatever it is we're trying to understand. Whereas if you start off by saying uh, the nation state is the most important category to investigate, uh, race is the most important category to investigate, gender is the most important category to investigate, then you've already occluded many aspects of the human experience which are surely going to be relevant even if you do want to understand the nation or race or class. And so that's in a sense where the book is coming from. And insofar as there was a a major academic influence behind that set of issues of the book, it really was uh, reading a a marvellous book, in my view, by my Princeton colleague, Dan Rogers, who wrote a book called The Age of Fracture. Uh, published in fact by Princeton University Press, which looked at several, not all of the categories that I was playing with, and at the ways in which very strong claims had been made about their explanatory capacity and their totalizing, encompassing of the human experience in particular class, gender and race. And Dan investigated in his book the advent of those claims in the 1960s, 70s and 80s and then the gradual abandonment of those claims in the light of the fact that more and more historical evidence came out which suggested that the most extravagant claims were simply not true, while of course accepting, as I myself do, that nevertheless to say we ought to be aware of class or gender or race is of course very important.
0: It has explanatory power but it's not the only filter by which which one one should be looking at the situation. Is this view, broadly speaking, gaining currency? Are are more historians uh, resonant with that particular view that that we should be casting our net fairly widely, we should be looking through these different filters, but we shouldn't be raising any one of them to some preeminent level? Is that changing?
1: I think it's changing a bit. I mean, I must repeat, there are still those who think that class, gender, and race is what you need to do, and you don't need to do anything else. But I think they're a diminishing group of people and I think there is a growing awareness of the fact that um, the past now seems a much more complicated place than it did when I was setting out 40 years ago because so many more new approaches to the past have been adumbrated and practiced in that period Um, and that the way the historical profession seems to work is that every 10 or 15 years somebody comes up with a new approach to the past and they begin by saying this is what you've got to understand if you're to understand anything but sooner or later it merges rather more broadly and less stridently into a broader con- uh, sense of how complex the historical process is and I think on the whole that's pretty much where, we're, where we are and where we're headed now but assimilating all these different approaches is of course a big job. I think another point I tried to make um, in the book, I don't think as successfully as I should have done, but then that can probably be said about everything I tried to do in the book, is to urge my colleagues that we need to engage much more with what's going on nowadays in a whole variety of relatively new scientific disciplines. Uh, I'm thinking of the Genome Project in particular, but a whole variety of work that's done on the nature of the brain uh, for example, um, and that's done on the whole issue of does skin colour tell you anything really about how people are. That, that as it were, there's, a, uh, there's been a big impulse, I think, over the last 20 or 30 years, still very flourishing, on the part of certain scientific subjects, to start asking what does it mean to be human and what's human identity, both in terms of how the brain works and in terms of, kind of how the body looks and how it functions. Um, And, of course, what the Genome Project shows is that um, uh, claiming huge differences on the basis of skin colour is simply not a scientifically sustainable position at all. Um, And it seems to me that there's a lot of this work now about what it is to be human, what human identities are, which is, as it were, about psychology and physiology, that I don't think historians are engaging enough with. I certainly make no claim to have engaged with it remotely adequately myself in writing this book. Um, but I think there's still a temptation to say, well, we should engage with Marx or we should engage with Max Weber or we should engage with Germaine Greer or whoever it might be. And I'm not against doing any of those things. And of course, I do that in my own book. But I think that the, the big conversation that we are not having enough of and it's that I think. With neuroscientists yeah, and Exactly and so. so uh, and, and the conversation that historians ought to be engaged in is exactly that conversation that you've just described. And I suppose part of what I tried to do in the book, but I think from an inadequate basis of knowledge on my part, um, and therefore inadequately advocated, was to urge that we really need, and by we I mean historians, to get in on that conversation.
0: Are, are geneticists and neuroscientists doing their bit? I, I mean, let, let me be very local, So here we are at Princeton. Mm. Do you have opportunities? To engage uh, in in any sort of systemic or quasi-systemic way with with people in the cognitive sciences, uh, with with people in the, in the in the biological sciences, are there ample opportunities, or sufficient opportunities, or for that matter, any opportunities for you to engage in a regular fashion? You as a standard faculty member here at Princeton,
1: there is some scope for that. I mean, Princeton is uh, is a very remarkable university because it's extremely good and it focuses a lot on undergraduate teaching. Um, and the faculty, and compared to Harvard or Yale or Princeton, it's quite a small place, so it's actually easier to uh, interact with faculty here because there are fewer of them. Um, And there are quite a lot of opportunities for that. I think there ought to be more opportunities for that. I think that the conversation between the humanities and the sciences, I don't want to get back to C.P. Snow and his two cultures, but I think there's probably more scope for that conversation now than there has ever been before in my lifetime. I mean, in the old days, you know, the two cultures was an educated person ought to know not just about whether Alfred burnt the cakes, but what the second law of thermodynamics is. And it was simply that that these are things you need to know as a kind of educated person no doubt they are. But I think the the, the agenda, the arena of conversation now, isn't, where well, we ought to know all these things because we ought to be well-rounded figures, though no doubt that's true. It's that they're directly relevant. It's that they're directly relevant, and there is the, there's a conversation to be had. Um, and I don't think enough of that is happening. Um, I got interested in this when I ran the Institute of Historical Research in London, and that's another influence on this book, which I suppose I only retrospectively became aware of where I did put on a series of seminars about what did it mean to be human and brought in people from a whole variety of different disciplines. And I suppose that also sparked off this interest. And I think that, uh, I don't think enough of us as historians are aware that that's the sort of conversation we really ought to be involved in now. I mean, you know, historians have done, as it were, Marx and they've done sociology and they've done anthropology. They've been involved in conversations and, as it were, got insights from those cognate disciplines and I'm all for that and indeed in my own work I've done some of that. But we are not so brave or venturesome, I think, as to have these conversations with people such as neuroscientists, which I think we probably ought to have. Because I suppose all historians probably do have a model of what they think humanity is. I'm hoping you won't press me to tell you what mine is, because I don't really know. But I suppose we all have a kind of assumption that humanity has always been the same um, and that we behave the way we do, Um, but that's not very rigorous, really. (laughs) Indeed, it's not rigorous at all, and maybe we need to be thinking about that a bit more, and maybe we do need to have conversations with a whole variety of people in the scientific community, not necessarily to take on board entirely what they're saying, probably we won't even understand quite a bit of what they're saying, but I think there's, there's, a, there's a conversation to be had. And Indeed. since, of course, Indeed. I'm a strong believer in conversations, this is another one I think we really ought to be involved in.
0: And I think even asking the question uh, of what it means to be human, yeah. I, I think forces one to take a somewhat different approach to one's historical research. Yes. Um, and picking up on that, there's been a, a fair amount of, uh, of development over the last decade or two in, in this notion of global history. Mm. And uh, you mentioned earlier uh, going beyond the here and going beyond the now, but th- th- this notion of, uh, uh, of expanding um, our understanding of human behavior, aspects of the human condition, human history, from a, a relatively isolated geographical framework and temporal framework into something mm. that's more all-encompassing. Is, is that gaining currency, first of all? Is this, is this notion that it's, it's important to take a globalized approach for the very reasons that you've enunciated, is that something which is gaining favor?
1: Yes, I think it is. Um It's certainly the case that global history and world history have become, I think, the leading sectors of historical inquiry in the last 10 or 15 years in a way that earlier on in my professional lifetime social history, uh, cultural history, gender history, the history of race were. I think that's certainly true that that's where we are. It's certainly true in this department where there are some extremely distinguished practitioners of global history and we give quite a lot of attention to that both at an undergraduate level and at a graduate level, Uh, I think it's also true that there is some awareness in the aftermath of 9-11 and the financial crash of 2008 um, and AIDS and, dare one say it, Ebola, that we do now live in an extraordinarily globalised world in which uh, something happens on one continent and within a microsecond it has an impact on another continent. And that encourages us to try to look back to what the earlier iterations or antecedents of that might have been, and that's often a driving force behind historical inquiry. So I do think that there is um, a push towards global history. I think it does have uh, benefits. I think it does uh, de-parochialize national histories, for instance. And if you do it the right way, it de-parochializes gender histories or histories of race or histories of religion. Um, and I'm all for that for reasons we've talked about earlier. I think it carries with it inevitable risks that it operates at such a high level of generalization that you slightly wonder, is there anything sort of tough and substantive and, and hard here at all? Right. Um, and that's a problem. You know, how many global history books can the, the market bear, as it were?
0: But, but not, not only how many books can the market bear. Uh, so I'm putting myself in the frame of reference, which is very easy for me to to do because it's my own frame of reference, of, of the guy on the street mm. who's listening to this. Mm. And I think, okay, so I, I, I can't use race as the filter. I can't use class as the filter. I can't use religion as the filter. So there's this awareness that what's being fed to me on CNN and what's being fed to me in the newspapers is a very, very simplistic view, this clash yeah. of civilizations yeah. view, this... This view of these guys with this religion are are the bad guys and these guys are the good guys. They fail to oppress these people because of whatever, because of gender, because of class. Mm. Um, And so I can't use that uh, explanatory framework anymore because the world is much more complicated than that. This is far too simplistic. But then I think, well, can I say anything meaningful yep. at all? Yep. I mean, what, what do I have yep. to hang on to? If, yep. if all I'm being told is, well, you know, it's a lot more complicated, there are n different factors as n approaches a very, very large number, mm. and, and it, it's all contingent upon time, it's yep. contingent upon place, it's contingent upon what people had for breakfast. And so if I'm in a situation where I can make any synthetic judgment at all, then I don't really know what to do.
1: Well, I think that's a very telling point, and I constantly say to people when I produce my homily that lots of people are in business to say the world's very simple and the historian's job is to say it's very complicated, that that's all very well. But suppose, as it were, President Obama, uh, desperate, he'd have to be very desperate, phoned me up and said, (laughs) what do I do about the Middle East? And I say... It's all very complicated, (laughs) wringing my hands. And he says, excuse me, I've got to have a policy. And saying it's very complicated is not a policy. And I don't pretend to be indifferent to that point. I mean, I think it is a valid one, especially if you're President Obama at the moment. Um, But I suppose my reply more broadly to the question that you've posed in a slightly better way than I've answered it would be the following, that... Of course it's true that to say everything's very complicated and that's just another version of one damn thing after another isn't good enough. So here's my answer which I'm afraid is simply I rise to the supreme conceit of citing another example of what I try to do. When I came to Princeton having been here as a graduate student but when I finally came as a faculty member um, and the department was beginning to connect with and get excited by the prospects of global history. There were discussions about what I should lecture on, Uh, since we take undergraduate teaching very seriously here, and I like lecturing to undergraduates anyway, I always find it enormous fun. Um, And I said, uh, oh well, you know, in the old days at Columbia and at Cambridge, I taught British history. And and the reply was, well, that's fine, but actually we'd like something which might, uh, as it were, allude to that, but which should look more fully at some issues of global history. And I said, all right. I said, um, I have done quite a lot of work um, on monarchies and on empire. I've written a lot about the British monarchy and I've written a lot about the British empire and I was willing to think about a lecture course which built on that since monarchy has been a global phenomenon and empire has been a global phenomenon. Uh, And so maybe I could devise a course which would be global uh, in its geographical scope because empires and monarchies have... Been around the world a lot um, and which would therefore be genuinely global history but would avoid the hand-wringing and saying it's all very complicated and here's one thing after another because it would be organized around certain themes which were genuinely global and so in the end I came up with a lecture course which is called something like monarchies and empires from the French and the American revolutions to the present day uh, and I give this at Princeton I shall be giving it next semester Uh, It gets a big audience. And what the lecture course is about is that it goes from 1776 and 1789 to as near to the present day as we can realistically get. And it's concerned at a general level to make two points. One is that the way um, political units have organised themselves for most of human history has been monarchies, not republics. And secondly, the way that political units have organised themselves for most of human history has been empires, not nations. Um, And that for people who live in the United States of America, a nation-state is something, a republic and a democracy, it's important to try to get them to see um, that this is a very unusual form of human organisation, which has only existed in this country for 200 years, uh, has only existed in some countries for a much shorter period of time than that, and in some countries to this day still doesn't exist at all. So it's back to the business of trying to deparochialize here and now um, and the way to do that is of course to begin with the American Revolution and to explain why that's so extraordinary and then to look at the French Revolution and then to look at the fact that throughout the 19th century most nations and there weren't many, most empires, there were a lot, were monarchies not republics and the French and the American examples were very much exceptions um, and that it's only really since the second half of the 20th century um, that Uh, the nation state, uh, nation states as republics and nation states as democracies have become the widespread mode of organisation. So that's an attempt to do global history, because in the process I lecture about the United States, about Latin America, about Africa, about Russia, about China. Uh, With a strong focus, with a comparative focus. with a comparative focus. But it's in pursuit of this broader point, since we are here to educate the gifted young, to provide them with some navigational equipment to make their way through life. That's what a liberal education is for. The purpose of the lecture course beyond that is to get them to understand that there's no guarantee that in their lifetime the nation-state will remain the prevailing form of human organization, and whatever they may not like about the United States, it is a pretty remarkable and pretty unusual place. And so that's an attempt to do a certain sort of global history with a certain kind of specificity. Um, built around these notions of empire and monarchy and then subsequently of the republics and nation-states. And I kind of hope it works. So
0: that's a, a, a very good and telling uh, and concrete example of how one can have something to grab onto if one happens to be a Princeton undergraduate. Yeah. Um, now let me ask you a question uh, that you have no business being responsible Answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Right. Uh, <laughs> which, uh, which is the more general question. You can probably see where this is going. If you don't happen to have the good fortune of being a Princeton undergraduate, um, and you're somebody out there in the in the world, you just have the media interpreting events for you. You have various books to read. Mm. Um, it's a variant on the question of well, what if uh, President Obama would find you up and say, yeah. "I need a policy." If you how, how might we be able in some conceivable possible world to structure contemporary society, broadly defined, to be able to somehow not descend to the shallow, simplistic, media-driven stereotypes, which, after all, are a driving force in our contemporary mm. democracy? I mean, this is how leaders get chosen. This yep. is how policies actually do get mm. made. Um, how might it be possible for us to develop some sort of framework so that your average, the average citizenry can be more historically sophisticated? Not perhaps to the extent of, 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 a, of a Princeton undergraduate, but how can we do a better job in avoiding these, these uh, trivial pitfalls of, uh, of simplicity in terms of these Manichaean dichotomies which are so clearly... Uh, not terribly productive, but not even true for the most part um, on a societal level. How's that for a tough question?
1: It's an extremely tough question, Um, and you may not even know how tough it is. When I um, found myself at a party here at Princeton um, about a year ago, um, I was in conversation with Neil Rudenstein, who's an old friend, um, former provost of uh, Princeton, former vice president of the Andrew Mellon Foundation, former president of Harvard. Um, a very significant figure whom I much admire. Um, And um, uh, at some point, I don't know, 12 months ago, no, it would be longer ago than that, two years ago, three years ago perhaps even, um, Neil asked me what I was writing. Um, And asking an author what they're writing and they tell you is rather like asking someone how they are and they tell you. You know, it's a deeply boring thing to do and you really shouldn't do it. anyway. I told Neil, and I trotted out the usual thing about religion, nation, class, gender, race, and civilization. And Neil said, um, and, and he was very tolerant and long-suffering, and he said, yes, I'm really sympathetic to what you're trying to do in this book. I think it really needs saying, but I have to tell you, nobody will take any notice. Uh, and what he meant by that, in, I mean, that in a sense is his much more pithy version of the question that you've just asked. Um, because what Neil really meant was it would be nice if we could do something with that, but we don't seem to be in a world where we can. Well, if he can't come up with an answer to that and you can't, I'm not sure I can either. But I suppose um, one goes back to the notion that this republic was founded on the idea of an educated citizenry. I take your point that not everybody can be lucky enough to come to Princeton. Um, I take your point that the media, uh, even parts of it that should know better, um, is interested in seeing the world in these binary terms um, either as it were presenting both points of view and assuming they're in conflict or just presenting one of the points of view which is I think a recent and particular trend in this country. Um, These are not helpful developments. Um, I think the notion of a serious commitment to trying to be, in some senses, uh, more aware of the complexities of the human condition and the degree of contact and the conversations across the boundaries of identity. It's like good news in newspapers. It doesn't sell. Mm. So getting people to sign up for it as a commercial proposition is, I think, not easy.
0: That's so hard. It's hard to do. And I it's mean, hard it requires, to do. It requires a lot of uh, honesty, intellectual rigor. Uh, it's very easy to fall back on these paths. stereotype.
1: I mean I suppose the area where I would like to think there might be some hope um, but I'm not sure there will be but since I'm an optimist let's go with hope is that I think we are on the brink of or at the beginning of a huge revolution in higher education as a result of IT as a result of the world of MOOCs where it's going to be possible for a global audience um, to listen in to lectures previously confined to the lecture room in certain universities. Um, Now there are clearly lots of teething troubles with that and maybe some of them will prove impossible to circumvent uh, or surmount. But I sense that we are heading towards quite soon a world where a certain sort of higher education is going to become much cheaper than it's ever been before and available to a much wider audience than it's ever been before. And I think that's going to be a great revolution Um, which has barely started. And it would be exhilarating to hope that one of the consequences of that revolution might be a greater capacity to reach a broader audience talking about issues such as this and suggesting that there are other ways of seeing the world. Um, Whether that will happen, I don't know. And I suspect that, as a friend of mine once said, you must cultivate... Pessimism, there is no other way to indemnify yourself against misfortune. But I don't agree with that. I think one should cultivate optimism in the belief that we can do better uh, and ought to try to do better. And I think this impending, just begun revolution in higher education, which has certainly started in the US and has certainly started in the UK, does offer some hope of being able to reframe the kind of public discussion that goes on among people, and there'll be far, far more of them in a far greater uh, span of the globe than before, who will have had the sort of education which will give them the means to participate in these sort of conversations and to have a rather more nuanced view of the world than too many small screens at the moment invite them to have.
0: Is that optimistic view something which many, some of your colleagues share? Is this reasonably widespread? Is this becoming more widespread? Or are you somewhat singular in those?
1: No, I I don't make any claim to be singular in anything really. Um, I think that there is certainly a sense, and again it's it's something that's developing strongly here at Princeton, um, that, as it were, um, the globalized world we're now in doesn't just mean thinking about history, that global history might be quite a good thing to be doing. But in the globalized world we're now in, we have to devise forms of higher education, and the IT revolution has now enabled us to do it, which are themselves um, global in their outreach. Um, I don't by that mean that I'm eager to get rid of the campus university. I think that what we're going to get is a much more varied set of higher educational offers, if I can put it that way. But I do think that there is scope now for a global um, arena of higher education which will reach into parts of the world where higher education has never yet got.
0: But, but I, I, I understand that. I, I guess what I meant is it's one thing to say we need to be doing this because we have the technology, because our provost tells us we have to be doing this, uh, or, or, or our president tells us we have to be doing this, or uh, this is all very trendy these days, and you have universities that say we're going to do a MOOC. And mm. Why are we doing a MOOC? Well, because MIT is doing a MOOC, yeah. and Stanford's doing a MOOC, yeah. and th- this sort of thing. Um, that's, that's one perspective. Another perspective is my goodness, we have an opportunity to really take this educating mission seriously to a global level. There is now the technology that enables us to be able to not only disseminate these ideas to people who never before had the opportunity to partake of these ideas, but also, getting back to the point you raised earlier, to find new ways of interacting amongst ourselves so that perhaps neuroscientists could have meaningful discussions with uh, with historians and so forth. So... The one view is, well, this is the way the world is going, and we have to sign on, and maybe it's good and maybe it's bad but the the other the other view is a is a is an emphatically sanguine emphatically optimistic view, and that's what I meant by it seems to me that you were quite optimistic about this from uh, reasonably optimistic uh, in terms of the possibilities and I was wondering how many of your colleagues share that virulent optimism, as it were, uh, or or whether you're somewhat unique in that regard.
1: No, I I make no claim to be unique in this regard or any other, as I say, and I think you've set up a dichotomy which, given the nature of the undivided past, I of course wish to break down. Um, (laughs) That's to say that I think what is driving, I mean, I don't think Princeton is doing this because Stanford's doing it, although Stanford may be doing it because Princeton's doing it, Um, but whatever the motivation, the fact remains that the big picture which drives what might be these slightly parochial University rivalries is, I think, the recognition of this possibility that you so eloquently sketched out. So I don't think these are at all incompatible. I think that a certain degree of rivalry between universities in pursuit of this greater goal um, will actually increase the likelihood of that goal being achieved. Um, And it's certainly the case that there are quite a lot of people here in Princeton who are very excited by that possibility. Um, And while I think that unbridled optimism is probably irresponsible and uh, the historical record maybe doesn't bear that out very often. I think guarded optimism um, is a very good idea and of course from my perspective uh, if these extraordinary changes in higher education really do come to pass and develop and intensify and expand uh, in the way that I hope many of us would like them to do, then this sense of a common humanity conversation, transcending the boundaries of these identities, uh, will be more hopeful and possible than ever before.
0: Right? Anything I haven't said? Anything you'd like to add?
1: No, I think we've brought ourselves beautifully to an end. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you very much. much. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About History, Volume 1, along with separate discussions with Michael Gordon, Margaret Jacob, Theo Ruiz, and Andrew Wallace-Hadrell. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to IdeasRoadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit HowardBurton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.